Welcome to the Redeemer Podcast. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit makingmuchofjesus.org. We hope you enjoy the talk and invite you to visit us next Sunday at either our 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. service. Happy Easter. It's good to see you. Uh, Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53. If you have a Bible, if you do not, you can go to esvbible.org and you can find Isaiah 53 there. Or if you don't have a device or anything like that, or you'd rather uh, just look on the screen, we'll have the complete passage up on the screen uh, for this morning where you'll be able to follow along. Well, we gather here today to remember the greatest event, the greatest miracle in human history. And not only to remember it, but also to respond to it. And we're here to celebrate and worship the greatest man in human history, the kindest man, the sacrificial lamb of God, the, the God-man, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there's a lot of themes that get thrown around at Easter time and what Easter's are about and what we should be thinking about. Easter is not about rolling back a stone of difficulties in your life. Easter isn't about getting a nice dose of religion this time of year. Easter is always and only and should truly be about Jesus of Nazareth rolling back the effects of death on himself and rising from the dead to forgive us of our sins. Easter is about way more than this injection of inspirational words on a Sunday. It's about looking 2,000 years back, looking to a bloody cross outside of Jerusalem where a man is hanging and where he dies, and he's placed in this tomb in Jerusalem, and then dealing with the claim, the linchpin, the hinge, the the gunpowder of the gospel that Jesus is alive, that his body turned back on, that it wasn't this ghostly, mythical reanimation, but that it was a truly bodily resurrected man, that he was a corpse on Good Friday and a cold corpse on Saturday. But then on Easter Sunday, his, his heart began to pump again. His brainstem kicked back on, his nervous system fired up, and his lungs began to pump. And that if that happened, if there is a man from Galilee who beat death to death and is not a pile of bone dust somewhere in Jerusalem, then everything changes. And then this book matters. Everything from Genesis to Revelation matters. And then if there really is a man who is alive in the heavenly places and that beat death to a pulp, then you and I Now, what we think about him matters. I mean, think about how amazing it is that we're thinking and talking about Jesus today. That alone should give us a reason to be interested in going, okay, what does the Bible actually have to say about Jesus? Because we're all here for different reasons. And I'm glad we're all here. All three services, I'm glad all of you have come today. Some of us are regular attenders. Some of you, this might be your first time here. We're so glad you came. Some are here because we want to worship the risen Christ. We're here every week to worship the risen Christ and praise Him and thank Him for what He's done for sinners like us. And some are here because maybe you just felt like you should. It's it's Easter Sunday. You know, we should go to church. We live in the Bible. That's what you do. You should go to church. Or maybe you aren't really sure why you're here when you begin to think about it. Now you're already thinking, yeah, I don't know why I'm here. I just kind of came. Autopilot. Just Easter. Came. Or maybe you came because you feel like you need some direction in your life. I don't like where my life's headed. I think I, I need to get back on track. Well, whatever the reason you came today, listen, God 
the only true God, he is ready and willing to show you what you need, what you need in life, what he's offering you. All of us, if, if we're all ready and willing to hear it and, and to see it and to feel it, because friends, we all need the same thing. We need a Savior. We need the Savior. We need forgiveness from our sins. We need safe passage into eternal life. We need deliverance from Satan. And not only do we need deliverance from Satan, we need shelter from the wrath of God that is to come. And Easter is the, the box of the all of the above. I want all of the above. I want forgiveness. I need deliverance from Satan. And I need safe passage into eternity. And I need shelter from the wrath of God. Easter is that solution. The story in the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, it's told in the first four books of the New Testament. If you're not that familiar with them, they're, they're called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're called the Gospels, the good news. The, that's what the word gospel means. So it's the gospel of Matthew, the good news from Matthew. Well, what is that? It's not just about the teachings of Jesus. Christianity is not just about the teachings of Jesus. That's really secondary to what Christianity is really all about. It is about the good news, not the good teachings, not the good advice. That's the good news that Jesus came from heaven, the Son of God, to die in our place for our sins and to rise again from the dead, and that whoever believes in him shall be saved. That's the news of Christianity. That's the main message, and that's the goodness that Christianity brings, and that Jesus does this for all kinds of sinners, that no one's too sinful. I'm amazed when you read the Gospels, if you've never read them, just give them a shot. I mean, you'll be amazed at all the kinds of people that come up to Jesus and that are not turned away, but that Jesus offers them salvation. And you'll also be amazed at the same time at the kind of people you would think, oh, they're going to be saved, and they turn away. Jesus doesn't turn away. They turn away. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John show us the kindness and the grace and the mercy and the love that Jesus offers to sinners like us. And it's not just in those four books. Really, the entire Bible paints the same picture. Genesis gives us that same story of God's grace to sinners, to the very first sinners, Adam and Eve. That when they sinned in the Garden of Eden, the wrath of God didn't immediately come crashing down upon them. No, He gave them a word of promise that someone will be born of woman who will save you from your sins. The book of Exodus is about how God will redeem sinners. And in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, it's been called the fifth gospel, this chapter, because it so richly paints and tells the story of what Jesus came to do for us sinners. And Isaiah, he gave these words 700 years, guys, 700 years before the first nail ripped through Jesus' skin, Isaiah gave us these words. And we hear from Isaiah, we hear from God's Word, beginning in verse 3. And what we do every week at Redeemer is we stand in the honor of the reading of the Word of Christ because we believe this is really His Word, the authority of King Jesus. So I invite us, if you're able, to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. And beginning in verse 3, the Spirit tells us through the prophet Isaiah, He, speaking of Jesus, was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. 
And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation who considered that he was cut off the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, they made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. It was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray together. Holy Father, now, would you help us? Would you help us to hear your word? Would your spirit be at work among us that we may behold the glorified, the resurrected Son of God, and that even today many would come to believe in Him, be open to receiving the newness of life and forgiveness in His name. Help us now, King Jesus, and it's in Your mighty name that we pray, amen. You may be seated. I really want to start today just with one, with one question. Has anything changed between you and Jesus? This really is the grand question of, of the whole morning. Has anything changed in your life at some point between you and Jesus? And that's a startling question if you think about it. Because first, that question, does anything change between you and Jesus? It's insinuating that something should change between you and Jesus. That there should be some kind of new relational dynamic between you and the crucified Christ. Between you and the resurrected Christ. And it's, it's insinuating also that you and Jesus have some current relational dynamic. Secondly, it gives the nudge that you need to consider him. Thirdly, it, it gives the other insight that who else from the Middle East that lived 2,000 years ago are we still talking about? That right now there are thousands of people meeting in thousands of churches in the United States of America who are talking about Jesus. And why else would the Iranian government, why would the Iranian government want to keep people out from talking about Jesus? Have you ever considered that? Why are all these countries scared about people talking about Jesus? Because they know there's something about him. So what do you make of Jesus? I think the Iranian government understands there's more power in the gospel than most Christians in America understand. And definitely than most Americans understand. What do you think about Jesus? This really is the sum of Christianity. Jesus Christ. Christianity is all about Christ. And that's been confused in the Bible Bell. It's been misconstrued and other things have taken center stage. But we need to remember that it's all about Him. Because Christianity is not about you and your good works quotient. 
and whether or not that's enough to get you into heaven. Christianity is not about you and your morality tally. It's about Jesus and what Jesus does for sinners like us. So what does Jesus do for sinners like us? Who is Jesus? Look at verse 3 of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. Back then, they hated Jesus. The majority of people could not stand him. There was no one wearing Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts in first century Jerusalem. They did not respect him. They did not honor him. They crucified him. They basically said he comes from a family of bad, bad blood. He comes from a family filled with sin. He came out of sexual immorality. He was a glutton and he's a drunkard. He's got demons. I mean, he was despised and rejected by men. But think about today. Isn't this still true today? 2,000 years later, isn't this still true? Jesus is still despised by many. And for some, his name doesn't incite praise. Instead, his name is just hitched to a wagon of profanities. But what about you? Notice the transition Isaiah makes. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We'll talk about that more in a second. As one from whom men hide their faces. So he says people don't even want to look at Jesus. His own disciples, they scattered at his arrest. Judas sold him out. Peter denied knowing him three times. I don't know that guy. I don't know him. But then look at the last section of verse 3. He was despised. Well, he already said that, Isaiah. Why are you saying it again? Because he wants to show us this last part, really heighten it. He was despised, and we, we esteemed him not. You notice how this changes now? We, we were not there. And remember, Isaiah wrote this 700 years before Jesus is laid on that Roman cross. And he says, you didn't esteem him either, Isaiah, to his audience. And then, then, they did not esteem him. And then today, in the 21st century, Isaiah looks at us and says, we did not esteem him not, and then including himself with us, we did not esteem him properly. And we went from talking generically to talking personally. Oh, yeah, all the guys out there, they, did, they despised him. He says, we did not esteem him either. We thought lowly of him. We didn't think much of him. We didn't hold him in high regard. We didn't care. And if you are a Christian today, you know this is true in your life. That there was a point in your life where you're like, I don't care about Jesus. Jesus Christ, so what? He's just another word I can use for profanity. And isn't it even interesting that we don't say Buddha's name for profanity? We don't say Joseph Smith's name for profanity. We don't say Mary Baker Eddy's name for profanity. So there's something, uh, why is this about Jesus? Because we don't esteem him. So what are your estimations of Jesus? What do you think about him? This is the most important question in our lives. What are your estimations of Jesus of Nazareth? What do you think about Christ? Do you think he's a good teacher? That's a lot of people commonly say, oh, I think he's a great teacher, good teacher. Wonderful. So you agree with everything he's taught. You agree that when he teaches in John 14 that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can get to the Father but by him, that he is the only Savior, he's the only way to salvation, and that we are in need of him, that we need him to be our Savior, that we are sinners, and he came to give himself as a payment for our sins. This is what he taught. Other people say, well, I think he's just like all all other religious teachers. It's, It's just not true. 
He's the only one who claimed to be God. He's the only one who claimed to come from heaven. He's the only one who claimed to be eternal. He's the only one who claimed to die in the place of sinners and that he would rise again, that though he will die, he says, even though I am dead, I I will still have authority to take my life up again. C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful essay called What Are We to Make of Jesus Christ? He says this. Listen to what Lewis says. If you had gone to Buddha and asked him, are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, my son, you are still in the veil of illusion. If you had gone to Socrates and asked, are you Zeus? He would have laughed at you. If you had gone to Muhammad and asked, are you Allah? He would have torn his clothes and then cut your head off. If you had asked Confucius, are you heaven? I think he would have probably replied, remarks are not in accordance with nature and bad taste. The idea of a great moral teacher saying what Christ said is out of the question. In my opinion, the only person who can say that sort of thing, that that Jesus says he's God, the only kind of person who can say that sort of thing is either God or a complete lunatic, suffering from that form of delusion which undermines the whole mind of man. If you think you're a poached egg and you're looking for a piece of toast to suit you, you may be sane. But if you, are, if you think you are God, there is no chance for you. We may note in passing, he was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced three, mainly three effects. Hatred, terror, adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. Lewis says three things. When we really encounter Christ, encounter what he said and who he is, really three things. Hatred, terror, or adoration. Not mild approval. If you're at mild approval, It's because you have never really been face-to-face with who Jesus is and what Jesus says about himself. If you're still at mild approval, it's because you've been playing the telephone game with the testimony of Christ. You've heard things through the grapevine, you've heard different things, but they've got diluted over time, and you've not been confronted with the raw, high-octane nuclear testimony of who Jesus says he really is. Even this chapter, to be really confronted with Isaiah 53, you come to a decision point. As a man in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8, he's reading Isaiah 53. He doesn't understand it. And then a brother in Christ, Philip, walks up, one of our brothers, and says, do you understand what you're saying? He says, no. He says, well, let me tell you. This is about Jesus. And that man says, oh, well, it keeps me from being baptized then. He believed. And so this passage is confronting us with, what do we think about Jesus? Look at verse 4. What does Isaiah want us to believe? Verse 4, surely... Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we, you see how personal it is? He's done talking about generic people. He's saying our griefs, our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He says, surely there is no doubt that when Jesus walks down that Calvary road, his journey to be nailed to a cross, it wasn't for the wrongs he had done. Because he had done no wrong. He was carrying our griefs and our sorrows. Christianity in Christ's cross is a signal to everyone in this room that Jesus is willing to carry your sins. He is willing to carry your griefs and your sorrows. Are you weighed down by all the horrible decisions you've made in your life? You're weighed down by all of the pain, all the frustration, all of the difficulty. Jesus says, come to me. 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart. And in verse 5, when he says he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Those nails ripped through his skin, not because the Jews tricked the Romans, but he was nailed to the cross for one reason, for our transgressions, for our iniquities, our sins, our failings, my lust, your lust, my greed, your greed, our envy, our refusal to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our refusal to love our neighbor as ourself, Jesus says, I will die for all of them. I will die for all of those things. To be a Christian isn't just to acknowledge that you are a sinner. To be a Christian isn't just to acknowledge that you aren't holy. Demons know they aren't holy. To be a Christian is to acknowledge and believe that you are a sinner, but that you have a Savior in Christ who was crucified for your sins, paying them for you, and rose again. It's to read verse 5 and say, He was pierced for my transgressions. He was pierced for my iniquities. He was crushed for them. He did die in my place for my sins, and He gives me. Look at what He gives. He takes our transgressions. He takes our iniquities. Now look at, look at what He gives us in verse 5. Upon him was the chastisement, the the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is the great message of Christianity. He gets our sin and we get healing. He takes our iniquities and we get peace. And the word peace doesn't just mean no war. It doesn't just mean calm. The Hebrew idea of peace, it means wholeness. It means completion. Finality, that uh, everything's right. Jesus restores us. He brings us healing. He brings us salvation. He brings us peace. And maybe you're thinking, but I've sinned in ways you can't imagine. That's fine. But the Lord knows. The Lord is not surprised. He's not surprised by sins you've committed. He's not surprised by sins that you're going to commit. And his wounds still bring healing to your soul. Peace and eternal security found in Jesus' cross that I really am forgiven forever. That since Jesus paid for my sins and the six hours that he hung on the cross, I will never have to pay for my sins in this life or ever. I mean, guys, our culture is brutal. People like to compare our culture and the church. Oh, the culture, they're more loving. America's more accepting. The society's more accepting of all kinds of people. And the church, ugh, they're always just hypocrites and casting people out. Well, maybe that's been true in some places, but it's not really true on a whole. Our culture is brutal. One celebrity messes up, there is no forgiveness for them. Lance Armstrong, he will never find forgiveness in the public eye. They have already crucified him, and his reputation will never be resurrected. You think Pete Rose will ever make the MLB Hall of Fame? Never. Because he cheated and because he bet on games and all that kind of stuff, he's admitted it was wrong. I just want a second chance. I want to move on. I want to start fresh, but the league will never forgive him. 
And God is more gracious towards sinners who have committed massive crimes and massive sins against someone more powerful and more important than the MLB, the God of the universe, and yet he says, I will forgive you. I've made a way for you to be forgiven. You don't just need a second chance. You just don't need to turn over a new leaf. You need new life in Christ. But I'm a big sinner. I've totally disrespected God. It's too late for me. It's clearly not too late because you're here. And you're alive. And you're hearing his gospel, his good news. And if you're a Christian today, we should be looking at these verses and going, this is my life. There is no doubt now that he has carried my sins. And if he has carried my sins, if he has borne my transgressions, are you experiencing peace that I am reconciled with God? Are you experiencing the healing that Jesus brings into your life? Because Christian, you and God have been reconciled. You have really been forgiven. Your eternity is settled. You have been redeemed. You are a co-heir of the universe to come. It is a wonderful day. This is the day that the Lord has made, and we must rejoice in Christ. If you want eternal peace and healing, there's only one source. In verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. All of us. doesn't matter skin color. doesn't matter nationality. doesn't matter socioeconomic bracket. It doesn't matter intelligence. doesn't matter upbringing. All we have gone astray. Every single one of us to our own way. We've tried our own thing. You've tried to save yourself through good works. You've tried to get peace in your life through morality. You've tried to bring healing into your life with bottles, with what you can smoke, what you can inject. You've tried to find it in all these ways. But yet, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We've been the sheep that have gone astray, but there is a sheep, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. He didn't die for kind of bad people. No, he dies for sinners. He dies for me. A sinner saved by the blood of Jesus. And he endured it all to save us, to forgive us of our sins, to be our sin bearer. As verse 7 says, he was oppressed. He was mistreated. He was afflicted. He was beaten. He had people punching him in the face, ripping out his beard, selling his clothes after they stripped him naked and hung him on the cross. Yet he opened not his mouth, verse 7 says. He endured it all. Even this weird trial he went in in the midnight hours, he opened not his mouth. And the Jewish rulers would ask him, answer yourself. Answer all these charges that are brought up against you. What do you say? He would say nothing. And Mark 14, the gospel of Mark tells us in verse 60, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? They're telling him all these, they're making up all these charges against him. What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Are you the son of God? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. If you think Jesus is a good teacher, he's teaching while he's in chains. I am the Son of God. 
and I will be seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. He answers this question because it's the only one he could answer. Are you the Christ? I am. He didn't answer all the false accusations because he didn't need to. He wasn't on trial. Even when Jesus is on trial, he is not on trial. We are. He couldn't answer all those false accusations because he had done no wrong. He had no sin. He was being judged in our place for our sin, and we were not there to answer. He did not answer because he was on trial for our sins. Because he had none. As 1 John 3, 5 says, you know that he appeared. This is why Jesus came, in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. And look at Isaiah 53, 10. All of this happened. Why did all of this happen? Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This was God's plan. The father was not caught off guard. The son was not caught off guard. The Holy Spirit was not caught off guard. It was not that the Romans got him in a corner and the the Jews took advantage of the political power that was happening and they were able to get a mob together because Judas sold him out. No, it was the will of God that would all unfold this way. From the beginning of time, even before time began, it was God's plan that Jesus would die in our place for our sins and rise again from the dead to pay for them. And that he would rise again. Look at what it says. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, what what will happen? He shall see his offspring. And he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What was the will of the Lord? To crush him. What will the will of the Lord do? It will prosper. It will happen. It will be effective. The cross will work. And he will rise again. Look at what it says. He shall see his offspring. Isaiah is saying he will not stay dead. He will see all those who will come after him, who will be children of God. He will prolong his days. He will live forever. This is not the final. When Jesus said, it is finished, he said, it, not I. He did not say, I am finished. For he was not. He would arise three days later. Because I don't know any dead people who can see their offspring. I don't know any dead people who prolong their days. He will rise and live forever and see all of those who will become children of God. Even right now in the heavenly places, Jesus is observing everything that occurring on earth, and he's seeing people repent and turn to him for newness of life. He saw the thief die next to him and told him, today you will be with me in paradise. He sees the Roman soldier at the foot of the cross who after Jesus dies and that soldier believes that surely he was the Son of God. He sees North Koreans responding in faith to a resurrected Christ. Jesus sees, even though the Iranian government tries to keep him out, he sees people turning to him. He sees the church planting movement happening in Cuba right now and seeing droves of Cubans come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he sees people in Tomball, Texas turning to him in faith. As verse 11 says, out of the anguish of his soul, out of that awful crucifixion, out of that pain, out of the anguish and the wrath of God being poured out on him, he shall see and be satisfied. Jesus does not regret the cross. Jesus is satisfied. He's happy. 
he is thrilled by what he has accomplished. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He is alive because he sees. He did not turn into a pile of bone fragments. He lives. And when by his rising from the dead, he ushers in this new era of humanity. When Jesus went into that tomb on Friday night, it was kind of like this divine crockpot was happening. This mangled corpse of a man was put into this tomb. The lid was put on. The stone was rolled up. And then Sunday brunch time, up from the grave he arose, folds his grave clothes, walks out victoriously, and now is showing the world, showing the satanic powers, showing those guards, showing his disciples, showing us, when you believe in me, there is now a new era of humanity. You can be made a new creation. For anyone who is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. You can be a sinner saved by me. You can be a sinner united to me. You can be a sinner who's going to be made like me. For if we have been, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, if we have been united with him in his death, we will surely be united with him in his resurrection, and we will have a resurrection like his. He lives to make sinners righteous. Right now, Jesus is alive to make sinners like me and like you righteous. That's what the end of verse 11 is saying. He will make many to be accounted righteous. He will call you not guilty. Even though you've done all the sins you've done, he will say, you are not guilty now. Even though you are not righteous, he will say, I'm counting you righteous because you get my righteousness. Jesus loves to save sinners. He does not regret the cross. He sees what he does. He sees what he's doing from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. He sees what he's doing first for the Jews and then to every race, and he is satisfied. He is thrilled to take our sins and to give us his righteousness. And I love when Hebrews 12 says, he endured the cross, despising the shame. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Sounds like Isaiah. He despised being despised by men. That did not affect him. That did not deter him. He despised being crucified naked. He despised having a crown of thorns put on his head. He despised having his clothes sold right in front of him. He despised being abandoned by his disciples. He despised all of these things for the joy that was set before him, that he should see the work of the cross and be satisfied and make the many righteous. This is the great message and the great entire point of Christianity, the entire point of Easter, the entire point of the Bible. And as Ephesians 1.10 says, it is the entire point of the universe that Jesus saves and loves to save and forgive sinners like you and me. He takes the blame. That's what the end of verse 11 is saying. He shall bear their iniquities, not his, ours. He takes the blame. We understand that. We did the crimes, we did the sins, and instead of God's wrath pointing at us, Jesus says, I'll take it. I'll take the blame. I'll die in their place. As 1 Peter 2, 24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And he quotes Isaiah, by his wounds you have been healed. 
Do you remember the question I started with? This is really what Easter is all about. Do you remember the question that I started with at the very beginning? Has anything changed with you and Jesus? This is really just verse 1. We didn't read verse 1 because I wanted us to end with verse 1. Look at verse 1. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord means salvation. To whom has God's salvation been revealed? Who has believed? This is really just my question. I rewarded my question from this. Has anything changed between you and Jesus? Have you believed what you've heard? Has God's salvation been revealed to you? Has the arm of the Lord outstretched on the cross receiving the nails, has that been revealed to you? Have you believed what you've heard from this chapter? As Acts 10.43 says, To him, all the prophets, not just Isaiah, all the prophets, bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Believes in him. This is the whole entire way and engine of salvation. Belief in him. That this is true. It's not, you know, get your life together and then come. And then you can believe. Well, I got to straighten some stuff out and then believe. No, no, no. Believe in him. But I did this. So what? There's no asterisks here. There's no footnotes here. There's no clauses here. Believe in him. And you receive the forgiveness of sins through his name. But I do this. I did this. Look, whatever it is you feel like is hanging you up, you can believe in him, and then the rest gets worked out and following him. Anyone that's ever become a Christian has come in to Christ at their lowest point in their life. And all of us, we're all trending upward until we reign and rule with him and live with him forever. If you haven't believed in him, why not? What's keeping you? Why why not believe in Jesus today? I believe that if you don't believe in Jesus, he has you here today so that you will believe in him. Why else would you be here? Out of all the places you could have been this morning, out of all the things you could have gone and heard this morning, why be here? Because I think Jesus is inviting you. Believe in me. You might be thinking, it sounds risky. I mean, it's like my whole life would have to change. Yes. And he'll work that out. There's time. We're all still growing. There are things in my life still being worked out. But if you're willing, if you're willing to risk it all, if you're willing to risk your eternity for things that moth and rust will destroy, If you'd rather hold on to this sin or hold on to this thing or hold on to whatever it may be instead of knowing your eternity can be secure with Christ alone, you have your reward. But if you're willing to have newness of life, Christ offers it to you in Him and Him alone. Because if we're all honest with ourselves, we all know we're sinners. Use whatever term you want. If you don't want to use sinner, you don't like that, I'm a bad person, fine. We all know if we're honest with ourselves, we, deep down, we've done wrong. We've wronged others. We've wronged God. So it's probably not a shocker to you that you're a sinner. So today, I hope Easter, I hope it will be a glorious shocker to you that Jesus will pay for your sins. 
that he offers you his righteousness, that he will count you righteous, that you will be acceptable before God of what Jesus has done, not by what you have done, that he'll make you acceptable before God, not by anything you can do, not by anything you can add, but by Christ and Christ alone. And then you'll follow him into eternity. This is Christianity. Easter is more than an invitation to acknowledge what happened. I'm not asking you just to acknowledge that, yeah, Jesus died and rose again. That's not what what Christianity is asking you. That's not what Isaiah is asking you. That's not what God's asking you. Christianity and the message of Easter is an invitation to acknowledge and believe that this happened for you. Not just that it happened, but that it happened for you. That he died in your place for your sins. That he rose again from the dead for you. And all you must do is believe in Christ and Christ alone. In him and him alone. I hope you will believe. And if you do, and only when you do, will it your life and will today and the rest of your eternity, will it truly be a happy Easter? This is the only way to a happy Easter. Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray together.